0: with the long break that we have had, a long break that we've had to take away from Genesis, uh, I don't know that I have ever been so eager to return to our exposition through the book of Genesis. And uh, I'm very eager to do so this morning. On your outline in front of you, In your bulletin, I've given you several points that are going to guide us through these three chapters. And yes, we are going to look at all three chapters. Genesis 9, Genesis 10, and Genesis 11. And the points there are going to guide you as we exposit our way through this passage. If you remember, we left off last time with the flood And the covenant that God made with Noah after delivering him and his family from that flood. And this morning our focus is going to turn and shift to the next event, a very important set of events in the Genesis narrative. And we're going to start with Genesis 9.18 and then we're going to work our way through almost to the very end of Genesis chapter 11. The first thing I want you to see in Genesis chapter 9, specifically verses 18 through 28, is this. We see there not only the drunkenness of Noah, but more importantly, the curse that comes down on Canaan. Even after the flood, which wiped out every living creature On the earth, due to the wickedness of mankind. Even after the flood, what is so startling, after the the wrath of God being poured down on the entire earth, what is so startling is that even after the flood, sin continues. Not only does sin continue, but the first glimpse we see of sin is with Noah and his son, Ham. Verse 18, look there with me. It identifies Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you will notice that throughout this narrative, the emphasis is placed on one of them, namely Ham and his son, specifically his son, Canaan. Verse 19 tells you the purpose Of naming these three sons. Remember, Noah and his family, they had escaped the the clutches of the flood, and now they had embarked on what was very much a renewed earth. Noah, like like a second Adam, is told, as the first Adam was, what? He's told to be fruitful. And to multiply, and this is key, and to fill the earth. To fill the earth. So when we come to chapter 9, verse 19, we begin to see this command obeyed. How will the earth be populated again? Well, it's through these three sons. But... While their dispersion throughout the earth will occur, it is not a given that each of the lineages of these three sons will be blessed. In fact, one of them will be very cursed. In verse 20, we learn that Noah is a man of the soil. He becomes a man of the soil. This must have included Noah farming the land, planting seed and enjoying its produce. Noah had planted a vineyard, we discover, and from this vineyard, he now receives wine. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with wine unless it should be abused. And in Noah's case, this is exactly what happens, isn't it? Noah... He drank too much, so much that he became drunk and so drunk that he, for one reason or another, lay naked in his tent. I I think it's appropriate to see here, and this is something that you see throughout the Bible. The Bible does not make things clean, untouched for your eyes, does it? You no, know, it leaves things wide open. In this case, sin. And the Bible does this again and again, whether it's with David in his sin of adultery, Bathsheba, Solomon and his many wives, or in this case, Noah, and the fact that here he is, In a very embarrassing circumstance in which he is not only drunk, but exposed. At this point, the whole affair, though, is quite private. But then something happens. Ham walks in on his father. Now, again, notice how the text, are you picking up on this? The text keeps reminding you of who Ham is. Who is he? He is the father of Canaan. Ham, and we're going to come back to that, Ham saw the nakedness of his father, which most likely was accidental. However, it's how he reacts that makes him guilty. He saw his father naked, and then he went and he told his two brothers outside. Now, you might be thinking, what is the big deal? What is the big deal? You have to keep in mind, and this is sometimes difficult for us in the 21st century to understand, but you have to keep in mind that the culture, the biblical culture of the time saw shame as a horrendous thing for a family. And it was. To bring shame on your family was considered horrific. Ham could have found a blanket and walked backwards and covered his father and been quiet about the whole event and protected, protected his father from embarrassment and from shame. But he didn't. Instead, not only does he leave his father in this state of drunkenness and being naked, but then he goes outside of the tent and he even shares it with his brothers. He gossips. Now, the embarrassment, notice what's happened here it has spread from one son to two others and the impression that's given in the text is that his outspokenness about what happened it's something that he delighted in he revelled in his own father's disgrace Do you see how twisted this is? In other words, Ham seriously disrespected his own father. He had insulted him. He had even taken advantage of his father's weak and fallen state. In a culture that greatly valued the patriarch of the family... This action by Ham, his own son, was very cheeky. Not only to Noah, his father, but to his entire family. But here's the main issue. Don't miss this. In dishonoring his father, he was dishonoring God. In dishonoring his father, he was actually dishonoring God. This is why the Old Testament makes such a big deal about honoring your father and your mother. To fail to do so is not only to sin against one's own parents, but against God who has put them over your care. It's to show contempt. I want to say a quick word to you if you are here this morning and you're young if you are still living at home especially still under your parents roof I want you to listen to me for a moment when you are a teenager you feel like you know more than your parents you're way ahead with the times aren't you and they just don't they don't get you, right? I remember that feeling. It's funny, though. When I was a teenager, my parents didn't know anything, but the older I got, the smarter they became. In reality, I realized when I became a parent myself. That even if my parents didn't do everything right, God had put them over my care, and I should have respected them more. What's your instinct? If you are here and you're young, teenager, perhaps, what is your instinct? It's to disrespect your parents. Take a lesson this morning. From Ham. To dishonor your parents, even, and listen to me, even if your parents have done something foolish, to dishonor your parents is to dishonor God. And it's to fail to live. Fail to live up to the responsibility, perhaps the only responsibility that God has given to you. As we'll see in this story, it's Shem and Japheth who receive God's blessing later in life, not him. Not him. And it's because they, when they were tested in that moment, they protected their father in his moment of weakness and in doing so, they demonstrated that they took God seriously. Well, let's return back to the story. In contrast to Ham, notice how differently Shem and Japheth deal with the news. They don't go and they don't tell others nor do they seem to delight in their father's disgrace. Instead, they go, out, they go inside, and what do they do? They go inside, and they cover their father's nakedness. And they do so in a manner that shows respect to their father. They walk backwards so that they don't look at their father in his humiliation. When Noah wakes up when he sobers up he hears about what happened particularly about how his youngest son's his youngest son had shamed him and perhaps you might have expected Noah to curse him but instead Noah curses Ham's descendant, Canaan. instead. Again, in biblical times, though this is foreign to us today, that, that your son would suffer for your own sin, in biblical times, this would have made very good sense. The actions of a father always had consequences, good or bad, Tremendous consequences for your offspring as we saw with Adam in Genesis 3. So so in this case, we see that it's not just Ham but Canaan and all of those who follow in his line that will be cursed. The curse in verses 25 through 27, look there with me, it's serious. Canaan will be a servant of servants, the text says. In other words, he's going to be a slave to his brothers. While Shem will be blessed and blessed by God himself, Canaan will be brought low as Shem's servant. And while God will enlarge Japheth, allowing him to dwell in the tents of Shem, Canaan is going to be a slave to Japheth too. These references to Shem and Japheth, they refer to the peace that's going to exist between these two brothers and their lineage, while Canaan and his descendants will be put under their thumb. What we witness here is that the conflict that we first saw in Genesis chapter 3, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the. Of the serpent. This conflict continues even after the flood. If you are familiar with the history of Israel and all of the history that follows in the Old Testament, then you know that this subjection of Canaan to his brothers and to their sons is one that plays out in many ways to come. Israel will conquer the land of Canaan under Joshua and the descendants of Ham, they will act just like their father by continually disobeying God and even entering into the most perverse forms of idolatry. By the way, it's no accident, it's no coincidence that it it is through the line and the lineage of Shem, that God in Genesis chapter 12 promises to bless all the peoples of the earth. It's no accident. Nor is it a coincidence that in a, a, a text like Isaiah 19 or Isaiah 66, ones that you can read on your own, these, in these texts, the prophet sees this blessing of the nations Through what lineage? Shem. It's through that lineage that the blessing to come to all nations will one day be fulfilled. When we come to the New Testament, it's Christ. Christ who fulfills this blessing promised to the nations through salvation, through the gospel message. As he tells his disciples at the end of the gospel of Matthew, what? Go. To who? All nations. Paul experiences the fruit of such a blessing to the nations when he takes the gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles in Greece, no doubt many of these Greeks would have been descendants of Japheth. Is it not right to conclude that these Greeks must have experienced the peace promised here in Genesis 9, just hinted at? when they found peace through the blood of Christ and were declared, as Paul says in Galatians 3.29, declared children of Abraham? I think so. Which brings us to our second point in chapter 10. Number two, the nations that we see descend From Noah are many, and they fill the earth. Based on these blessings and curses, we can see already the trajectory of what lies ahead for all of Noah's descendants. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 unfolds who these many descendants are exactly. Many of these descendants will reappear throughout the Old Testament as Israel will encounter them. If it were not for Israel's own sin, as we will see later on, ideally these nations would be blessed through Israel. As I've emphasized in the past, I know when you come to chapters like this, Genesis 10, it's overwhelming. Genealogies sometimes seem pointless, to us in the 21st century, but actually in Scripture, these genealogies are not without significance. Of course, different narratives and genealogies take different approaches. Sometimes a genealogy will be strict, strictly linear. We saw this when we looked at Genesis chapter 5. But in Genesis chapter 10, the ordering is it's more segmented, like what you would see on a on a family tree. There's several notable features. I'm not going to work through this entire text, but I want to point several things out to you. Notice, first of all, the genealogy's order when it gets into all of the names. It starts with Japheth and then Ham, and then it ends with Shem. Some have argued that by beginning with Japheth and ending with Shem, the author may be purposefully Beginning with those who are farthest away from the land that Shem's descendants will, will live in. Others have pointed out that by ending with Shem, the, the narrative, it, it basically aims to prepare you for the promised line of Shem that will develop throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Also, notice what's involved here. It's not just individuals, is it? There's individuals, but there's also groups of people. And there's also not only groups, but even locations named. This is very different. So this genealogy includes ethnicity, geography, and even entire language groups. And notice that there's there's a a total of 70 nations in this genealogy, and so it has been called sometimes the table of nations since it appears to represent all people. And while the story of the Tower of Babel that awaits us in chapter 11, while this story awaits us, this genealogy in chapter 10, it goes way beyond that time period to tell us what people and how people throughout the earth even got there, and how they spread. Something should be said before we move on about verses 8 through 12 of chapter 10, and this man named Nimrod. Since out of all the individuals mentioned, Moses in the book of Genesis decides to give a description of this man in particular. Look at the text there, Genesis 10, verses 8, One of the descendants of Ham is Nimrod, whom the text says was the first on earth to be a mighty man, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this means, whether this is a positive or a negative description. On the one hand, it could mean God's favor was with him. But on the other hand, being described as a, as a mighty man and hunter could refer to the rebellious side of him. And we've seen this before. Or perhaps the text, some have said, if, perhaps the text is just giving a, a neutral observation. But regardless, this man doesn't seem to have a good reputation. Notice verse 10. We read that the beginning of of Nimrod's kingdom involved Babel. And as we'll see soon in Genesis 11, this is a city that defies the living God. And on top of this, some have ventured to say that Nimrod is one who started cities perhaps even by violence or force. Regardless, you can see through this genealogy how the descendants of the earth spread to their different regions, either in a positive or a very negative way. And that leads us to our third point into Genesis chapter 11, the rebellion at Babel. After taking a big-picture look at at Genesis 10, of all these nations, the text now takes us back to the point in the genealogy just prior to the people scattering throughout the earth. And the text, what it is doing for you, it's going to zoom in, much like a camera would. But here we're zooming in on a specific slice of time, specific incident in time, in which we see the same wickedness and rebellion that we saw prior to the flood. At this time, there was but one language, the text says, one language on the whole earth, allowing all people to communicate with one another. How nice this must have been. His people migrated, though, from the east. They settled in this land, Shinar, and they then decided that With bricks, they would build themselves a city and one with a tower, one in which its tops would be in the heavens. Notice in verse four the motivation, and that's what's key here the motivation behind this plan. What is it that they say as they embark on this huge feat? They say, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We have to pay attention here to what they were building and why they were building it. Some have argued that this tower was a ziggurat, which basically was a huge staircase that was designed to reach all the way up to the gods. The top would have even been painted blue, perhaps, so as to blend in with the sky that the the gods were thought to dwell in. It would also have a shrine dedicated to these gods. And the whole point was that man could climb his way up and interact with the gods through this tower in the heavens. Now, it's hard to know for sure if this is exactly the type of building they built, as the text doesn't get into those details. Some have said that no, perhaps this type of building came much later in history. But even if that's true, the tower represents man's efforts to climb his way up to the gods. In this light, the tower was truly an act of rebellion against the one true and living God, the creator of the whole earth, the one who had clearly put a line between the creator and the creature, a line and a boundary that wasn't to be crossed, We can't miss in this text the pride that's involved. Do you see it? The pride that's involved here. What do they say? They say, let's build this tower to make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Isn't this... The exact opposite of the command that God had not only given to Adam, but to Noah after the flood? What was that command? You remember? Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill. The earth. Fill the earth. Instead, this group of people, they defy God, refusing to fill the earth. And not only that, they are going to make a name for themselves. Can you can you feel? Just how blasphemous this is. In Scripture, it's God's prerogative to make a name of someone, not ours. As we will see next week, there's a contrast here with chapter 12, Genesis 12, where God appears to Abram in order, the text says, to make a name out of him. But here, in Genesis 11, it is man who thinks he will make a name for himself. Here we discover that man's rebellion against God, it didn't cease with the flood, did it? lusting after fame and fearing dispersion. These men built a great tower. Men who were just consumed with themselves and their reputation and their desires. They built this great tower to heaven, an act that only displayed their outrageous hubris, self exaltation, their pretentious humanism, their united autonomy, and their rebel defiance against the Creator, who previously commanded man to multiply and fill the earth. That is what is happening in these verses. Authority. Authority is the issue. As one author has put it, certainly they desire to be God in the sense that they disobey God's word, thus attempting to seize divine authority for themselves. Nothing changes after Eden, does it? Nothing changes, right? Like Eden... With Babel, God's will and God's command is forsaken. It's abandoned. And it's flat out rejected. Have you ever noticed the irony, almost the comedy, that's in what happens next? That, that's in God's response? Look at the text, look at verse 7. How does God respond? There's this enormous tower going up to the heavens. This grand display of man's autonomy and his power. His greatness. His bigness. How does God respond? Verse 7, we read that God bending low To go down, go down to their tiny, puny tower, then confuse their language. You see that? He has to stoop down to even see this little thing that they built. to then confuse their words and scatter them throughout the earth. The word Babel conveys, means confusion, folly. Man's self-proclaimed unity and wisdom has resulted in nothing but confusion and foolishness. God recognized that there there was no end to this people's arrogance. Their sinful autonomy. So, God, what does He do? He scrambles their one language, and the entire enterprise comes to a screeching and immediate halt. And as a result, the Lord dispersed them throughout the entire earth. I want you to place yourself, because perhaps we're asking at this point, what is this? What is the text? And this is crucial to do as you're reading through scripture. What is the text? saying, I mean, imagine what the text here is saying to Israel as Moses is giving them this historical account. Place yourself in the shoes of Israel in the Old Testament times and try to imagine what it would have been like to hear this story in particular. Not only would this story have informed you of your ancestry, but it would have, been a warning and simultaneously a great cause for hope. Let's look at both of those. First, a warning. Remember, the nations surrounding Israel later in the Old Testament were a tremendous threat. What Babel exemplified only lived on in these nations that were to follow. And the temptation for Israel, temptation they gave into so much, The temptation for Israel was to want to be just like those nations, even to enter into their idolatry. But here is a warning from God that the rebellious autonomy at Babel, it only results in divine judgment. And if Israel sought to defy God And go the way of these nations. Their fate would be the same as Babel's. But there's also hope. There's also hope communicated. This story would have been been one of hope for the people of Israel. As the nations intimidated Israel, the story of Babel was a reminder that no matter how great their Ingenuity and collective power may be or appear. It's no match for the true and living God. Should Israel remain faithful to the Lord, He would redeem. He would redeem them from their enemies and conquered them who threatened to destroy them and wipe out God's promises. Even later on, When you get to the prophets in the Old Testament, even later on as Israel sat enslaved in exile to who out of all people? The Babylonians. This story would have provided tremendous hope to you. Reassuring Israel that God, He would have the last word. And His judgment would result in his people's salvation. His plan would continue despite man's rebellion against him. It's a reminder to us, even, that God is absolutely sovereign and no secular kingdom will stand against his kingdom. Is it not hope for us as the bride of Christ, the church as well, Have we forgotten what Jesus told Peter? I will build my church, Peter, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You think Babel is something? Try the gates of hell. Not even the gates of hell, Jesus says, will prevail against it. Do not the kingdoms of this world so often aim to bring down the people of God? But do we not have every reassurance that at the right time, God, he will look down, way down, at their tiny, puny revolt, turn their words of threat and to babble, and to continue to bring to fulfillment his plan and his kingdom. We have every reassurance of that, which brings us to our last point. Number four, the promised seed continues through Shem. Look at Genesis 11, verses 10 through 26. This story is a sad one. It's a sad one. It's a tragic story, one of judgment, in fact. But at the end of Genesis 11, we're given hope. Do you see that in the text? Look at verses 10 through 26. The narrative turns from this tragic story of man's rebellion to who? The descendants of Shem, the blessed line. Why would the author turn our attention after Babel to Shem's descendants? You see, Shem's genealogy, it demonstrates that despite the, this enormous chaos at Babel, and despite the scattering of the nations from Babel, God's promised blessing on Shem and his descendants, it continues. Out of the chaos comes order. And while the offspring of the serpent raged at Babel, it's through Shem's line that the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15, it will prevail. As we will see next week, it will all start with one of Shem's descendants named Abram. We are left at the end of this sad story longing for redemption and renewal, aren't we? We're left longing for the day when God would reverse this confusion of languages even and restore unity to the nations while we will witness the beginning of this restoration and God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham in the weeks to come. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of such restoration comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel which is good news not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile too. And I think we have seen in Scripture the first fruits of such a reversal with Pentecost. For the Spirit was poured out so that people speaking different languages all heard those speaking in tongues. And they understood in their own native language what was being said in Acts chapter 2. Of course we await a day to come a last day when as revelation as revelation 7 says the nations will gather together the nations will gather together around God's throne and worship the lamb together with their many tongues. Don't we long for that day? Let's pray. Lord, we can get so narrow-minded, so focused on here and now that we sometimes miss Seen in Scripture your big plan, your overarching providence to bring the nations before you to worship the Lamb who was slain and now lives, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we prepare for this meal, this Lord's Supper, May we not forget your sovereign plan to bring salvation to the nations. May we not forget your promise way back in Genesis and the fulfillment of that promise. Whether it's with Eve, whether it's with Noah, whether it's with Shem and his descendants, Abraham, all the way to Jesus Christ. May we not forget how your promise is carried on and how we, if we have trusted in Christ, are children of Abraham. And we enjoy the peace that comes through the gospel of Christ. It's that peace we celebrate this morning. In the name of your Son, the Lamb of God, amen.